0: What is going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Boom Boom Performance Podcast. This is the number one spot for all things coaching, guys. We do not stop at training and nutrition. We go much deeper. We touch on mindset, motivation, entrepreneurship, success, lifestyle, stress, you name it. We touch on it because my goal with this show is to be the coach through your speakers. I live my life to coach people. That's what I love more than anything. That's what I do for a living. That's my passion. So I want to create a coaching experience through your headphones, and that's what this is all about. If you're new to the show, please do me a favor, look in the show notes, look in the description of this episode, and check out the top four most played, most downloaded, and favorite episodes from you, the listener. That's going to be the Nutrition FAQ, the Training FAQ, Nutritional Periodization, and My Personal Journey into Fitness. So I'm really excited for you guys to listen to today's episode because this is the first coaching roundtable I have ever done. Um, I am a big fan of content. If you guys didn't know already, for those of you listening or those of you who follow me on Instagram or my blog or anything, you know that I'm almost obsessed with content creation. Um, In fact, I got some really cool things in the works uh, right now. Actually, I'm just going to plant a bug that some very big and very exciting things are coming soon for me to be able to deliver even more content. I'm super excited about. But today... Is not about that. Today is about the coaching roundtable, and this is the first one I've ever done. See, I'm a big fan of listening to other people's podcasts. In fact, one of my favorite podcasts is actually one of the guys listening to this or on this show today talking with us, and that's Steve Hall. Um, something he's done a lot of our roundtables. Um, JPS, uh, he's done roundtables. Um, I've heard YouTubers do a bunch of roundtables. Jeff Nippert has done a bunch of roundtables. They're really cool ways to bring leading researchers together on an episode and have a discussion or a debate. Um, but usually it is just that it's people in the labs, it's people in the research, which I absolutely love. It's a cool way for me to hear people speak on the research and the studies that are actually going on in the laboratories right now from the experts that actually do them and, or understand how to interpret them on a whole different level. So we get to see these people, we get to listen to these people, come on board and have a debate about the study, have a discussion about topics that are very complicated and very scientific. But there's not that many roundtables out there that go into coaching. And I know I have a lot of people that are either A, coaches themselves, or B, people who are not coaching do not care to look at the research or do not have the um, – I say intelligence, and I do not mean that in a negative way as you don't have the intelligence. But the reality is is you have to be very particular. You have to be intelligent in a very particular way to truly interpret studies. There's a lot of confusing terms in uh, – What's the word I'm looking for? Paraphrases, uh, abbreviations. There's a lot of different uh, ideologies inside of them. There's a lot of different types of messages and talking inside of studies that make it very hard. If you pull up a PubMed study, it can be difficult to read. Um, So listening to those roundtables helps because we can understand them better. But I wanted to take topics like carb cycling, cardio, Training splits, uh, fat loss duration, how long should you be on a cut, um, diet breaks and refeeds, how long should you do those, how often should you do those, uh, the biggest mistakes we see with clients coming on board. So these are just some of the topics we touched on today. But the cool thing about this podcast is that we're taking topics that have probably thousands of studies on and have thousands of experiences and anecdote, anecdotal ideas or methods or tools or strategies or simply just times that we've used these things into the podcast so we can review those and talk together. So I know I'm kind of going on a rant now, but I was really excited about this podcast because Steve Hall from Revive Stronger and Austin Current from Physique Development, those are two guys that um, I would consider friends now. We've had multiple conversations uh, going back and forth. We've had Multiple podcasts together, and they're just really good human beings that put out really good content and they do a really good job at coaching. I find myself in the same category. I like to think I'm a good human being. I'm really passionate and great at coaching, and I like to put out really good content for people to learn from. So, what better three people to come on a podcast and discuss topics that you guys always ask me about? And now you get to hear three expert coaches who have a lot of experience in the game talk about these topics in different ways, how we each individually use those, how we each feel about those, how we each think they will work or will not work. So I'm really excited about this, guys. I think you're going to take so much away from this podcast. There was so much good information. Um, We went quite a while. I want to say the podcast is like an hour and a half. We could have gone longer. We could have kept talking easily because the conversation was flowing. Um, I know sometimes when you listen to roundtables, people are interrupting each other and there's not a good flow. I promise we didn't do that. It's actually really, really conversational. We didn't interrupt each other. We interjected when it was appropriate. It was just a good conversation uh, with three passionate, intelligent coaches going in on some of the most commonly debated or commonly asked questions in the nutrition and fitness industry. Guys, if you enjoy this content, if you enjoy the effort I put into this show to help you get more and more free information to get better results, please do me two huge favors. Number one, share this with a friend. Above marketing, above all the paid advertising, above all that kind of business mumbo jumbo, the number one thing that helps me grow this show is actually just word of mouth. So you simply texting it to a friend, emailing it to a friend, posting it on your Facebook, Snapchatting it, I don't care how you do it, however you do it. That's how this podcast grows, and that's how we continue to reach more people and help more people around the world. The best way, though, is to jump on your Instagram, post it on your story, and tag myself at Cody.BoomBoom because I want to see it. I want to thank you for listening to the show. I would love it if you tagged Steve Hall at Revive Stronger and at Austin Current underscore as well so they can see it and thank you as well because we were both really hyped about this podcast and we're really excited for it to drop. The other way you can help me grow is in iTunes directly. Even if you're already subscribed, you would need to search the Boom Boom Performance Podcast, click leave a review, leave us a five-star rating and review so I can see it and I can see what you guys enjoy about the show and keep doing that so you can get more of what you actually enjoy. Um, and if you're not subscribed, please hit that subscribe button. That's the number one thing. I should have said that from the get-go. But um, I appreciate you guys being here. I'm really excited for you guys to be here, and I'm really excited for you guys to listen to this podcast so you can take away so much good info. I've been talking for too long, though. Let's get right onto the podcast. All right, guys. Steve Hall and Austin Current on the podcast today. I'm excited about this because this is the first time I've ever done a roundtable, so everybody listening – apologies if it isn't as smooth as it will be in the future, but I'm planning on doing more of these. I actually have a few more already set up. Um, But the goal today is to go over coaching strategies. Uh, We have three people in here that are very intrigued and interested in the science, in the research, and we use a lot of this stuff. But I I believe all of us use it in a practical and applicable way because as we know, some studies and things inside of science are really cool, but they may not be applicable to the general population or even to physique athletes specifically. So I really want to dive into some specific topics, some questions that we get asked a lot, um, and then just kind of go over the uh, strategies we use inside of it. I'm, I'm not going to do an intro for both of you guys because you have both been on the podcast. So I'm going to link those episodes in the show notes for everybody listening who wants to check out the episode with Steve or with Austin. Go back, listen to those. Um, I highly suggest both of them. We've gotten a ton of great feedback on them. Um, and then we're just going to kind of jump right into the question. So the first thing we're going to touch on today, just to kind of create context and give the listeners something to think about not making in the future is the biggest mistakes you guys have seen. So Steve, we'll start with you and let's just kind of touch on the, uh, the biggest, like one to two things that you commonly see with guys or girls approaching you for coaching.
1: Cool, yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, It's an honor to be on with yourself and Austin. Uh, I've kind of interacted with Austin sparingly online and I can attest him being a fantastic coach. So it's really cool to be on, on with you both. And I was hoping that I'd be the only one with glasses because I thought it might just give me that edge of looking a little bit smarter. But Austin, uh,
0: I, dude, I felt it.
2: I felt it was gonna happen, so I'm like, I gotta match his uh, level of
1: intellect. <laughs> visually, the, so. the
0: first thing I thought when I saw you guys was like, damn it, I didn't wear my glasses.
1: <laughs> now you look like the dummy. So uh, yeah, it's funny. The I was literally actually just speaking to my girlfriend about um, like our the typical person that applies to our coaching. And it's almost applicable to 90% of the guys or girls that apply to our coaching, and whether or not they're coaches themselves or are competitors themselves, or just incredibly into it. Um, they all have a very similar problem, which is paralysis by analysis. Uh, most of the people I coach, some of them are very much smarter than me. Others are definitely on a level playing field. And a lot of the time it's just me saving them from themselves in that They're looking at the latest research. They're very much in depth into the minutiae and I can oversee and have a bigger picture and keep them pounding away at the foundational consistent things that they need to be consistent at to get the results that they really want. So the thing I find people really kind of eats them apart is when they're tweaking their program every week, they hear a new podcast, they're tweaking it. They hear, see a new study and and they're tweaking it and it's really keeping them away from those consistent Tweaks that aren't helping and they're actually detrimental towards their goals and keeping them kind of chilled and calm and a little bit less stressed because uh, these sort of tweaks are not helping them in that either. So that's the biggest mistake I see. A lot of the clients that I'm helping are almost too smart for them, their own good and they need to just be kept kind of from changing things too frequently Uh, it's like that typical person who they haven't changed on the scale for a week so they they kind of want to chase it and it's kind of um, stopping that short-termism but also additionally to that is that short-termism in terms of like this new study comes out so they want to make that initial quick change so these are the the problems i'm seeing and this is typically what i'm helping people do is focus more on those principles bigger picture items and uh, saving them from themselves
0: I actually think that's why it's so important for even coaches to have coaches because we're the people that love looking into all this stuff. So sometimes it's hard to read something really cool and interesting or listen to it on a podcast and not want to try it out. Um, So I know for me, having a lot of clients, it's easy to be like, okay, who does this match with? What method can I use on these people? And it kind of saves me from information overload and using too many things on myself. And on top of that, I have a coach that I just hand everything off to. I'm like, you do the training, you do the nutrition. I don't want to worry about it. So um, I love that, man. I completely agree. And I think I see that a lot. So, yeah. It's, it's, all right. I'm oh, sorry. So going off. <laughs> I had nothing I not, to say. Not <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, yeah, I, mean, I, I'll agree with, uh, I'll agree with Steve here in, in terms of like, Getting lost in the minutia and honestly being too smart for their own good. Um, and there's a level of honestly, just get the big stuff right consistently. Um, that is going to index super well and get you, you know, ninety percent there. Uh, so, in terms of in terms of that, I agree with you, uh, Steve, on that. And I'll add, I'll add one thing in, in saying that another thing that I, I, that we experience um, from clients that come into us is thinking that you kind of have that secret uh, or that one change or like one dial change on that, on the dial of the gear that is going to basically unlock something that is going to let them continue to do what they're doing. Um, And so it's often that they'll come in and, you know, they're, Hey, here's my plan. Here's what I've been doing. Um, what would you change? Like I'm hiring you. I want your expertise, but what would you change on this plan to move forward with this? Cause I'm really enjoying it. I'm like, i mm, I change a few things, but if that, if you've been doing that for, you know, X amount of months and like, we haven't seen much, like maybe we should try something else. Um, so I, I think it's that level of open mindedness of being able to kind of like recalibrate, Um, and listen and trust that person that you are giving the reins over to. Um, But I think aside from what Steve said there, uh, I would just add that thinking that you kind of have that one change, that one or two, those one or two changes that are going to allow them just to keep basically going with what hasn't been working um, for so long. And that's just not typically the case. So I'd say those two things are pretty popular.
0: I think we can all agree on this too. And you guys both kind of said it, but simplicity and consistency put together really make the best results. I mean, some of the most impressive physiques, like it's a result of them doing the same simple things every day for a really long fucking time. And it just works right. There isn't like, like you said, Austin, there's nothing like you're going to come on board and you're going to make this one little tweak or this one little change or add this one style of training or supplement or macronutrient tweak and all of a sudden boom things just happen right it has nothing to do with that it's just communication and consistency over the long run so um, I'll echo both of those I think we run into the same things and I think it's hard because this is the good thing about working with people that are in the physique world is they are patient and they really love the process and I think people who aren't into bodybuilding I think they focus too much on the end result versus the process and that's why they have this impatient mentality and I think that can kind of bite them in the ass or just cause more frustration you know
2: I would go to say as well to add to that is, um, if you're someone that is constantly very anxious and stressed, like that applies to life in general, um, simplicity, simplicity and consistency, like make for a good program. They make for a pretty good life. Um, they make for pretty good anything. Um, so, you know, if you're stressed about your physique, or you're stressed about your life, like take a step back. And, um, I said this, uh, I've said this a couple of times over the past couple of days, but just do the big things right consistently, and try not to sweat the small stuff too much. Um, and to be honest, that
1: is a, that's a recipe for success in many
2: areas.
0: I 100 percent agree, man. Steve, do you have anything to add on to that?
1: Yeah, I was only going to say, and I think that was a great point by Austin. I, I was only going to say it's it's Im- surprising to me sometimes how uh, much having a, a coach and having someone that you're paying and that accountability, because obviously we all know accountability is huge, but generally I see that more as something that's pushed towards maybe that gen pop person who kind of is more used to yo-yo dieting, whatever it might be. But even I find like some of the people I coach are personal trainers or in their off season as a competitor. And they also really struggle to be consistent and that just having that person to check into and be accountable to keeps them sticking to what they're really meant to be doing. Just like spreading out their protein, making sure that they're going and actually doing all of their um, training sessions each week and working hard at it, like submitting form videos and all of these things. That accountability thing is just huge because I think a lot of the time I've had people come to me and they are clued up. They know exactly what they're doing and they t- describe to me their issues. And I'm like, I have no idea how I'm going to help you with this. But if you're happy to like get on board and we'll just move forward, then we see if it works. And quite often it works. And it's just a case of, they weren't adhering to what they were saying they were to, adhering to before. And it, it surprises me each time, but that's the, the power of coaching.
2: Yeah, it's great to have a program uh, written down that is seems like the best, man. Like They've listened to all your podcasts, Steve, and they've just set up the, the best program based on the latest research. And they got all the intensifiers. They got all the everything in there. And it's like, oh, that's fantastic. But you got to execute the dude, man. You got to do it. And that's like... God, I mean, I've set up some, probably some crazy programs that are just like, this is pretty epic. And <laughs> I honestly, like, I just don't, a lot of times I just don't follow through and I'm, that's the reality of the situation. And so it's, yeah, in terms of people coming in looking for help, like that is a lot. Yeah. I
0: Good think, point, a, I think accountability is just underrated in general. It's just not something that's a sexy cool. There's not a ton of there. I mean, there is actually some research on people who paid for a, a service and, this other group did not pay and the group that paid got better results and whatever they were doing because they just had skin in the game. And I'm the same way. I've created a ton of programs or I'll recreate a program every single week because I just keep trying new things and I'm going to tweak things. And then I realize, like, man, I've done something different every, <laughs> every week and I need to get back with somebody. Um, it's, just, it's just powerful. And like you said, Steve, the little things, and I am guilty of this, even in my own nutrition, like letting little things slide quite a bit And then simply having somebody come on board, not tweaking a thing, but just checking in with me. And now I'm just like militant, just on point. And I'm actually happier doing so. My results are better. And it's like, okay, I just needed to get back on board. So 100% agree with that. Um, I'm going to move on to the next question here. And it's about refeeds and diet breaks. This this is something that I've talked quite a bit about on my podcast, on the blog and stuff, um, just because... I think in in we work with more general population, um, I would say more advanced general population because they are into macros, they're in tracking, they're into periodizing their training, but they're not necessarily stepping on stage. And I find I'm one of the people that uses refeeds and diet breaks quite a bit inside of general population because I think it just applies to handling the stress of a diet inside of a stressful lifestyle so much. So we talk about it a lot, but there's a lot of research on two days, three days, full diet breaks. So I kind of want to just go we'll start with you again, Steve, and just kind of go into your practical applications of it. Like, what do you find yourself using the most? Um, Obviously, there's a lot to say that a single day of refeeding isn't hormonally going to do much, but I still think there's some psychological benefits to it. So I'm just curious of like when you use what, what you find yourself using the most, um, and what would be people's biggest takeaway to take from your specific coaching practice, if that makes sense
1: absolutely and uh, it's it's great because i recently interviewed and the podcast hasn't come out yet but there's been other podcasts with Jackson Pios on and he's doing a lot of research into diet breaks and obviously had uh, la mcdonald who first popularized refeeding quite a lot had him on the podcast to kind of revise his refeeding strategies and what that was really providing people and obviously it's been kind of pretty convincingly proven that any results of refeeding for 2 3 days are going to be fairly short-term in terms of what they're having the impact on, like hormones and kind of ridding diet fatigue as kind of a sum word for that, uh, but like yourself there is times at which I do utilize them but they're mostly from a psychological aspect uh, from an ad- adherence aspect so there's people who are brilliant at dieting when they're working during the week they're very busy and they can stick to a very decent calorie deficit and on the weekend they want a bit more freedom they want a bit more flexibility so maybe we call it a refeed it's planned it's not just a cheat meal or anything like that because I think that brings with it negative connotations and the potential to really do some damage and so we just say like okay we're bringing calories up to around maintenance, Uh, try and make it carbohydrate heavy potentially, but maybe not even that, just the psychological results are sufficient to keep someone adhering and sticking to the calorie deficit. For Physique competitors, I sparingly use refeeds. Um, I, um, I haven't seen huge benefits of them. And most of the time when I ask a competitor, would you prefer to have a higher level intake through the week or lower days, and then a couple of higher days, they don't like the look of the lower days and the higher days sometimes just keeps people very kind of food focused sometimes. And they end up kind of thinking about that day, like the whole week and it drives them mad and almost increases food focus and has a bit of a negative aspect on their psychological health in that regard. So then I provide kind of uh, diet breaks and I typically would combine those with a deload week. And that's something I've been using for quite a long time, maybe the, the last couple of years. And that just, for a lot of good rationale in terms of the fatigue reduction from training because you're getting rid of lots of training volume and you're also allowing glycogen replenishment through bringing in calories to maintenance, mostly again through carbohydrates, which I particularly emphasize at the beginning of the week. Later in the week, I'm less concerned because a lot of the kind of glycogen replenishment can happen within like the first three days and then they can get a bit more relaxed towards the end of the week. And you're also going to see the biggest short-term benefits from increasing carbohydrates, I think, via leptin and thyroid and everything like that so they're going to feel a bit better by taking that approach but when i do tell people diet break it's important to emphasize the fact that it isn't a kind of again, it's not like cheating. It's not like they're actually not dieting anymore. Dieting is kind of like a bit of a lifestyle, especially for um, someone who's got goals. They can't just kind of completely go off what they're eating. Uh, Very much emphasizing to stick to similar foods, especially again at the, the first kind of few days of the diet break, because they're probably going to be quite hungry. By the end, maybe incorporate some of those foods they've been really looking forward to have that psychological release and then get back into dieting. Um, kind of like if you've got a long car journey, you have brakes and these can be kind of the diet breaks that you're taking to refuel, let yourself keep going along with the diet. Uh, And I found that to be really, really successful. Uh, It's something I use within my contest prep in 2017. Didn't use any refeeds. Uh, it was all diet breaks. So I kind of just kind of accumulate the refeeds you might have taken through the many weeks of dieting and put them all together. And it's seemed like each day of kind of maintenance intake seems to have accumulative benefits. And it seems to be that the research is supporting diet breaks over refeeds now. But again, the psychological aspect of all of this is so big. So I certainly am aware of people who do not enjoy diet breaking and that this causes them to screw up because then they're super hungry after it and they don't enjoy that feeling. So, uh, it's kind of, you do individualize it, but for most of my clients, I'm a big fan of uh, not utilizing refeeds too frequently unless it's just for an ad hoc uh, kind of a preference or um, adherence reason if there's a wedding or something on those lines or a birthday or something like that and then trying using diet breaks along with their deload as kind of a periodized uh, nutraceutical concordance I'm glad I managed to use that word um mike <laughs> Isartel, uh, I think I, I learned that from him where you're just basically trying to synergize your nutrition with your training and that seems to make a lot of rash ration, good rationale for me
0: I love it man um before i pass it on to you austin uh, Steve, do you have any, just cause I know people and, and the answer is always, it depends, but I, I think people always want to know, well, how often should I do it? Do you have a typical timeline that you stick to for most of your clients? Like I usually put them in a deficit for, if we have not, let's say a specific stage date, but three to four weeks in a deficit and then a full week diet break, or is it more of like, we're just going to watch your biofeedback, see how you're progressing. And we're just going to kind of throw these in when I think necessary.
1: So they tend, yeah, it is more so auto-regulated, but with a idea that it's going to land on a certain week. So just like um, I might know this person can probably accumulate volume and progress their training for four to five weeks and then deload. That's when I'm going to be like, right, when that deload occurs, that diet break is going to come in. A big fan of combining the two together. So that's how I tend to do it. Yeah.
0: Love it. Great answer. Austin, I'll pass the mic to you.
1: Yeah. Thanks. I think uh, Steve actually answered that really well.
2: (laughs) I don't really have much to add Um, in terms of, in terms of like the minutia of it and just the general guideline of it. But I think another aspect that I'll look at it from uh, for a client is again, looking at kind of the biofeedback of it. And are we, how are we recovering? Um, And how are we sleeping? Uh, So I think in terms of like having a diet break or having even like more of a prolonged refeed in a way, like kind of a three or four day Um, or I'll combine like the two days off in a row with a refeed or with two higher calorie days. And like that can almost, if you've had three or four days of like bad sleep because of like accumulated fatigue or volume or metabolic stress or whatever it's, it can be beneficial. And I've seen it work not only for myself, but for clients um, to kind of give them that two or three days of higher calories a little bit lower stress and then it kind of like gives them that it's not even that the the food did it it's like the combination of higher calories lower stress and being able to just get a full night's rest um, helps so I think from the perspective of that um, to add on to what Steve said is is something to like maybe look out for uh, or pay attention to but in terms of just looking at biofeedback and auto-regulating it to where you think is best. Um, and then if you do have a client that is a little bit more aware, um, if you do have a client that is a little bit more aware, you can kind of meet them in the middle, I think, uh, in, cause I, I, have a handful of clients that are very, you know, <laughs> as, as Steve said, that like either smart, probably smarter than me or, um, on the same play playing field. So it's, It's kind of like, hey, they'll kind of bring it up. Like, hey, what do you think? We'll kind of push here. And then, what do you think about a diet break week four, week five? And it's like, yeah, I think that would be good. Like, let me kind of oversee that to make sure that we're not kind of overstepping our bounds or that we're not being reactive. I'd rather be proactive with it. Um, That way, we're not getting too far into a hole and having to dig ourselves out. So, um, I'll just, that's, I, I just wanted to add that to what Steve said, but I think Steve broke it down really well.
0: Yeah, I love it. And I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, give you the mic first round on the question next time to make sure that we're not just agreeing. <laughs> but um, something to add to that, I, I do. I like that approach, too, because I think it's so important for people to understand that tracking sleep, looking at stress, these things is so important, because even if you're not a coach, that's how you get to a level where you could have conversations with your coach, understanding when, how, why you should be implementing these things. Because um, like what you just described is very similar to like the relationship with myself and my coach. He'll ask me like, "How are you actually feeling?" And I'm like, "Man, I think it's it's going to be time for this soon. Like I'm starting to feel this way. Like we should consider this." And he's like, "Okay, this is what I was thinking." And it's just more of a collaborative, and, and I think adherence goes up because. I feel respected. I feel heard. I'm like, yeah, cool. Like we're making this decision together. Um, and then obviously it makes his job a hell of a lot easier because I understand what we're doing and I know these things. So I encourage people to track that biofeedback just for that sense. Like you don't need to be a coach to be that level. You just need to be self-aware of your body. Um, but, but I do want to ask you a question, Austin, going off that, cause you mentioned taking two rest days with refeeds. And I know a question I get all the time is, okay, I have a refeed or two. Like, should these be on leg day? Should these be on super intense days? Like what is your response to that question that it tends to be pretty popular in the general population? Cause back in the day you had cheat meals on Saturday and it was like the intense leg day and you just went all out and <laughs> you had to do that. Um, what is your response to that? Why do you feel like you not necessarily need to have refeeds on a on a strength day, so on and so forth?
2: That's a good question. So I've so my benefit, like I've I'd rather have a higher calorie like two one or two high, higher calorie or at least higher carb days before i go into a session not the same day um especially depending on when you train so if you are waking up first thing or like even training in early afternoon like that high like you're not going to see the performance benefits in my opinion um from that higher calorie or higher carb day and in general um Mm -hmm. at least i've experienced that and i've seen that with with clients especially in contest prep as we go get down um to the nitty-gritty of it so in terms of like I think it's super relative. Uh, I, I think if you're someone, if you're a competitive athlete, then I think it's something that you need to, to be on board with your coach and kind of like communicate when, like, hey, usually the day after, two days after the high-carb day, like I feel best, I look the best. Um, that's usually when I like to kind of either hit these, I, I, like hit a hard leg day. It's good to com- kind of communicate that back and forth, I think. Um, but in terms of general population, I think you just have to be intuitive with it and know what's coming up within your life, know what's, know what's coming up in terms of events, um, and know that it's, there's nothing special to just like your, you know, like the, the old adage of like, well, chest only grows on Monday, so that's when we train it, right? So it's like, you know, high carb days or cheat days don't, don't only, it's like, it, it only works on Saturdays, right? So um, in terms of that, I think you have to be super intuitive um, and then if it was especially gin pop and then with competitive athletes, a mix with intuitive, but also like in, in, intelligence, um, practice and protocol and being proactive with it and seeing what your athlete is, how they're performing and how they're recovering uh, from that.
0: I love it. I, I, People need to take note too that a lot of these strategies are built into a weekly caloric deficit. So when a coach is implementing refeeds and diet breaks and things like that, he probably knows, he or she probably knows what your weekly and essentially monthly caloric deficit is that we're working on. Um, so these things aren't random, they're factored into the total. So it's, it's you're still in a deficit most likely. And I think that's why people need to understand like taking a two-day diet uh, break isn't going to just boost your metabolism out of Nora. it's more of like an insurance policy for adherence and and just making sure you don't downregulate too much um but this isn't wasn't a question on the plan but i'm gonna austin kind of already gave his feedback on that so i'm gonna give it to you steve um but with just pre pre pre-workout nutrition um i think there's like there's some people that are just like it does it really doesn't matter total calories it takes a while for your body to you know facilitate glucose and get it to glycogen anyway so don't worry about it. Eat the night before you'll be fine. Some people are like, you have to eat before. Like, I just want to get your opinion. Austin kind of made his clear that he doesn't think it matters too much, um, especially in the sense of refeeds. And and if you have a different opinion, I'll pass the mic back to you after Steve Austin. But um, Steve, if you want to give your thoughts on pre-workout nutrition.
1: Cool. So yeah, I agree with Austin in terms of like, you almost want to eat, you almost want to have the, think about the fuel for the next workout like the following day because you're right in terms of like fully glycogen replenishment it's going to take a while it's like when uh i always think about competitors when they're trying to peak on show day and it's kind of like hang on you had peak week you're supposed to be glycogen full when you come to show day and show day you don't do do much basically you've you've already got the glycogen stored in your muscles and there you just pump up and you have some water and have some sodium you look fantastic so you don't want to be doing that on show day and if you're flat on show day morning it becomes really difficult you have to have like liquid carbohydrates consume them fairly frequently and you can only actually uptake glycogen at a certain rate like i I can't remember what the actual rate is so i won't even try and quote it but you're completely right in that it takes time so um completely agree with austin in terms of like refeeding probably the next day is when you want to have your hard training session because that's when you actually be in a well-rested state and i like the idea of combining kind of low activity with kind of maintenance intake because it's kind of like that combined synergistic kind of recovery effect Um, but in terms of pre-workout nutrition and i i don't know if austin would apply that thinking completely to pre-workout nutrition because i definitely think it has a place um and I, i don't think it's completely useless especially in a scenario where someone's dieting they are glycogen depleted and they can actually kind of try and top off stores as best as they can going into a session. Um, even if it's just like topping off, allowing them to have blood glucose coming into the system for that workout. And you also have to consider people bang on about like post up workout nutrition, but quite often what you're taking in pre-workout is then reaching you post workout. is kind of, That is your post-workout nutrition as the pre-workout. So um, I think there is a place for pre-workout nutrition, especially for someone who's dieting and has been dieting quite a while. And you can certainly screw it up. So um, whilst it may not have a huge benefit in terms of like making sure that you're topping off glycogen levels, and especially if you're in an off-season and you're in a completely glycogen full state most of the time, and that's the main benefit, the, the huge downsides in terms of like if don't know if you consume it too close, you have tons of fiber, lots of fat, gastric emptying is really poor, and then you just go into a session bloated and you can't kind of do your squats because your belt can't. I, I've been there where I can't do my belt up and like my stomach's just aching and I'm like, oh god, like this I can't brace because I've got all of this stuff in my stomach. So I think it's important to have kind of somewhat of an idea of what you're doing pre-workout, especially from just uh, keeping it fairly light. You don't if you're having a heavy meal many hours beforehand is what you want. If you're having very close to workout, you certainly want to keep it light just from that aspect. Uh, And then I think there is some kind of potential benefits from topping off glycogen stores for the most part, even if most of that may even be felt post-workout. I still think there's probably some benefit there.
0: Austin, do you have anything to add?
2: Yeah, I'll just, I'll add exactly um, agreeing with what uh, Steve said there in terms of, I think also pre-workout nutrition has a lot to do especially like pre-workout nutrition because you can think of pre-workout nutrition the night before. Um, so if you train first thing in the morning, like pre-workout meal could be your last meal, uh, theoretically of the night, the night before. Um, so thinking of pre-workout nutrition, not just like it has to be right before your workout. Um, and something like that, uh, can be viewed as like, you know, maybe you have a higher carb based meal, uh, before you go to bed, this is the context of like you training first thing in the morning. Uh, So you have a higher carb based meal, um, allow that to kind of top glycogen stores off throughout the night, uh, do its thing there and then wake up, maybe have a a scoop of protein or something, um, have those amino acids going through um, as you go to train. And so like for me, I don't like to have a lot of food uh, in my system because especially if I train first thing in the morning, but obviously if you push that off, to late afternoon, evening, then pre-workout nutrition in terms of like carbohydrates you've eaten throughout the day or even, you know, an an hour or two before like are going to have a a much bigger effect um, on your workout performance. So yeah, I I think Steve and I are in agreement there for sure.
0: Yeah, I'm in agreement with you guys too. And I think a a funny thing to add would just be uh, the placebo. Like if I have a small meal with protein and carbs, I just feel better. And I think it's purely mental, even if it's like so quickly before that I know it's not really doing much for me. I just mentally am like, I got it in my system, I'm ready to go. And I've always been that way. So for me, I'm like, Oh, I got to have my pre workout meal. Um, I think it's just ingrained in me because it's been that way for years and years now. Um, but I think it's something to consider uh, in general. So m- moving on to the next question, uh, back to kind of the fat loss side of things is long conservative cuts versus short and aggressive cuts. And I think there's a lot of different routes we can kind of take. Um, And I don't think and I think we can all agree on that. There's no one way to do it. I don't think there's anything wrong with short aggressive cuts in the right context. And I don't think there's anything wrong with long conservative conservative cuts, uh, more of a casual approach to fat loss in the right context. Um, So I would more or less like to get your guys' explanation on when you separate these things. Like what type of a client are you going to focus on? When is it okay to use an aggressive cut? Um, And how do you mitigate that? Like the the stress that causes with die breaks, refeeds, periodization, so on and so forth. Um, And just kind of get an idea of where you guys both stand on this. Um, And I'll, I'll pass the mic to Steve on this one.
1: Cool. So yeah, I think you outlined it really well in that i don't think what if like it's one is better than the other it's one might be more suited to a certain scenario so i can certainly talk through kind of the rapid or the more uh, short term fat loss um, kind of scenario first. And I guess the way I would term that in the way I use things would be uh, mini cuts, essentially, where they're a diet of two up to six weeks for the most part, I think longer than that, it's kind of starting to turn into a a more normal length of cut. And that would be left for people who are experienced dieters, Um, aggressive dieting, full stop should be for people who have done diets before and have succeeded them and know what that feels like they know kind of their diet foods they know um, they should be eating high fiber low calorie per bite foods with lots of water and they have trained in a calorie deficit and a harsh one before because if someone who's completely new to dieting jumps into like a mini cut or like a rapid fat loss diet they're in for a harsh reality and their training performance is going to go to poo they're not going to be in a very good place they're probably going to lose muscle mass and it just will burn out whereas someone who's experienced in a really good position they can go into that sort of diet and along with being experienced along with that you also want to have a stress-free environment, a fairly stress-free one at least, or you have ability to control that. So if you're about to have a newborn child, probably a bad idea to go into a mini cut because your sleep's certainly not going to be good. And if it is good, you're staying in a hotel and you're probably kind of divorced now because you've you've prioritized your fat loss over actually looking after your child. But it could be anything. It could be the fact you're starting a new job or moving. And it could also be that you're not in a stress-free place in terms of you've just finished, like, I don't know, a contest prep. You see these people who binge after a contest prep and then they're kind of, I don't know, 20% over stage weight in a matter of weeks. And they're like, oh my gosh, I need to mini cut or something along those lines. And it's certainly not the answer for them. Uh, So it's uh, for someone who is probably in a a prolonged off-season state where they're somewhat of a, a decent body fat, not super overweight, but not super lean, where they can just chop off a decent hit of body fat, uh, maybe losing up to one to 2% on average per week, 2% would be very aggressive, but maybe on average 1% per week, but it might go up to 2% for a few weeks for two at absolute minimum. But normally I like three to six weeks. Uh, that's kind of the scenario in which I would have someone aggressively dieting, um, to then come back into a gaining phase. And it almost is for the person who needs their appetite to Kind of go into that yo-yo state where they really are stuffing themselves and they really actually need their appetite to increase so it almost acts as like a positive rebound whereas rebounding after a diet is normally pretty negative um, but it because it's aggressive it will create that kind of positive rebound into a gaming phase um the conservative diet is then for basically anyone else so people who have a decent amount of body weight to lose or it's their first time dieting, these are what I would use more conservative, longer-term dieting phases for. Uh, they could still lose like at the start, 1% of body weight per week because for them at maybe like 20% of body fat as a male or like getting into 30% body fat as a female, they can still lose up to like a percentage of body weight per week and that's comfortable for, for them. Um, they could even potentially lose more than that. So it's not necessarily a rate of loss thing that is making it, like conservative versus aggressive, it would just have to be longer for them. Um, And that would be conservative for them, I would say. Uh, So I don't know if I need need to go over more conservative, like of those, uh, the conservative reasons, but um, I think mini cuts and kind of aggressive dieting is really for someone who is in a bit of a unique position. And I just like to reiterate that there's no problem with taking a more conservative approach. Uh, I've had clients who have wanted to do the mini cuts and I've, I've trialed them with them and it's just not gone well. And then we just decide that mini cutting isn't for them because they are very aggressive uh, and there is no reason, unless you've got like a deadline or something, why you can't go more conservative and be a bit more kind of uh, allowing for your lifestyle and those sort of factors. And a lot of the time they can be more successful because then you don't have a complete rebound afterwards, which might be unwanted in many cases.
0: Yeah, I think I think the conservative is better said as a sustainable approach in general, right? Um, What no matter how we approach that, I think just to throw it out there too, not always, but a lot of times with mini cuts, I think it's good for people to know it's a lot of times it's designed for people who need to keep body fat levels in check when they're in a reverse diet or a gaining phase versus this is going to get you to your ultimate goal weight uh, for the gen pop. Right. So just to throw that out there some, for some context um, like reading the uh, mini cut manual, I think it's called by Renaissance periodization is a good example for like people who want to like learn how to approach those properly and when they're actually used well. Um, and Austin, when you go into your side of it, I would love for you to touch on uh, the adherence side of things. Cause we all know, like I, I know a lot of coaches that when the matador study came out, they got really excited and they wanted to use the strategy and the deficit weeks are a really aggressive. Uh, approach but if you look at it it's, I mean in, in the context of a conservative diet it's it's a long period of time the matador study was a good amount of time and people can use that for a long period of time and I think sometimes that bites people in asses and I don't think it's always the best strategy nor do I think it always works but how to kind of juggle this ad, this coaching hat for adherence right like maybe that kind of approach, more aggressive approach, but more frequent diet breaks is a good sustainable conservative approach for you because you can adhere to it versus somebody who can't. Um, it's not much of a question, more of a statement, but I just would love to get your kind of thoughts on the adherence side of things.
2: Yeah. I think you kind of have to have a, uh, you have to have a North star. You kind of have to have somewhere you're working towards. I think you can kind of get lost. I've found, um, if you, either you or your client don't, uh, really fully express what they're looking for out of it. Um, Like, okay, I want to do a, you know, they may come in like, oh, I want to do a a mini cut. I want to look like this in this amount of time. And it's like, okay, um, that's kind of our North Star, but how can we best set this up? And so like that would be maybe the the time to do more more of an aggressive one um, with the goal being obviously adherence long-term and setting that up in a way strategically on a coaching end where you're kind of giving the client a little bit of what they want and you're giving or more so giving the client what they want in the beginning while you kind of sprinkling in things you know they need and then over time kind of like moving that ratio more towards what you know they need and they've kind of you've got the buy-in from them to know they kind of now trust you and you're giving them what they need uh, but I'd say like long term adherence wise again it's kind of like knowing what your North star is and knowing kind of where you want to end up. Um, and I'd say from, I'd say for general population, I, I prefer honestly to take a longer approach. Um, because for me and like how we coach, um, and especially me, like I kind of like to have just more time. Um, like obviously I'm trying to get you to your goal as, as quickly as I can, but within that I want to have time to teach and educate and like give you the philosophies behind things um, and allow you almost to kind of like feel that uh, because I think within that longer term diet is where you're actually building like sustainable lifestyle practices. Like you're building those habits that you need to take into the rest of your life. And I think um, I, I think I see the most that where people are falling off, it's not, again, it's, it's not gonna be most likely it's not an education problem or a knowledge issue. It's they haven't had the time to set up these, these sustainable habits over time um, and then stay consistent. Like we talked about in the beginning and do the, do the big things consistently. Um, and so like in terms of setting things up uh, for me and and clients, like I think in terms of like the difference between uh, more of a, I would say aggressive cut and more of a conservative long-term cut. I would say go as quickly as you can. Um, obviously while keeping adherence and, uh, and then getting feedback with the client, like how, again, cause there's so many, right? Like with general population, there's so many lifestyle factors that come up. Um, you have people that are super regimented and then you have those people who are super like everywhere. Um, and you know, they, they may do like a bunch of impromptu traveling that you have to kind of like oversee and, that may take what they originally wanted to do from like an aggressive cut perspective to, okay, well, if you do wanna take this impromptu trip, like we're gonna to have to like cut back, we are gonna have to like pull back a bit um, and make this a little bit more uh, conservative. But in terms of adherence, um, I, I'd say the biggest thing is communication with your coach uh, with this, because, you know, as a practitioner, uh, as us three being practitioners, we can, implement things of like and also we're a little bit more extreme than I think the the norm um, where we know we can adhere to pretty much whatever you put in front of us and so coming from that place it's kind of like yeah I could travel and do this and do this and do this and it's like yeah that's fine but for a lot of our clients it's like I can barely travel and do one of those things and so it's the communication factor of like where are we at with all of this Um, what are you willing to do what are you wanting to do where on the level of like the hierarchy of importance is this goal for you, um, within this certain timeline? I know I'm being very general here, but it's it's hard to give very specific advice, um, you know, to this question because everyone is kind of that individual. Uh, but I, I think in terms of adherence with with whether it's an aggressive cut or a conservative cut long term, I think the biggest thing is going to be communication and being very open and a little vulnerable, um, with your coach and just say like, cause I think it's, it's easy to be like, you know, yeah, bro, I'm killing it. I'm, I'm digging deep. It's like, yeah, but you know, from the outside looking in, like you're about to lose your shit, <laughs> you know, things are about to hit the fan. <laughs> um, and then you're going to have that bounce back, right? Like that rebound of what Steve was mentioning. And like, is, is that the, is that the goal too? Um, you, like we don't want that to be the goal. So if we get to your goal six weeks earlier and we end up rebounding and bouncing back, like, did we really do what we wanted to do? Or, you know, did we just kind of like spend some time drastically cutting and then spend some time like quote unquote massing really fast. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, I hope I answered your question. I, I that was kind of, uh, <laughs> that was a, kind of everywhere, but I think communication's huge.
0: Yeah, no, I agree with you, man. I think uh, couple things that you that people should be looking for in a great coach. Uh, Number one, great coaches ask a lot of questions. And you did, you mentioned that multiple times. I think coaches always want to know more, want to know more, want to ask more, want to hear what your thoughts are, hear what you're doing. And I think that just allows, again, self awareness to grow, but it gives us more context to help you adhere to things better. Um, And then like you said, the education piece, I love that because something I always tell to clients that are onboarding to work with our team is like, you're not going to work with us at some point in time, whether that's in three months, six months or 20 months. Like at some point you'd need to do this on your own. You need to understand how to do it on your own. So a good coach is like educating you throughout the process and is okay explaining things to you. And I think it's good to find people like us who love this shit because when people ask questions and they want me to explain, I get excited because I'm like, cool. I love bullshitting about this stuff. Let me tell you about it and going into it. But I think it helps people so much, not only from adherence, if they understand why they're doing it, the buy-in is so much stronger, but also again, when you, we part ways, I want you to reach out in a year later and be like, Hey, I'm still doing really well. Cause I understand this stuff now. Um, so I'd echo everything you said, man. I, I completely agree. Um, to, to continue going on, uh, questions that really depend and have no definitive answer. Um, I had to pose the high carb versus low carb question. And the reason I really wanted to bring this up is I've actually heard a lot of this on your podcast, Steve. So I'll let you, answer this one first, but um there's been a lot of talk about like high carb massing and stuff. And if you look into, I mean, a couple things. There's been some pretty cool studies on bodybuilders prepping for shows and showing that most of the people that do really well tend to follow a really high carb, lower fat approach during prep. Um, and then the other thing is like if we just look in history, like the most jacked guys at time, they typically followed a high carb, low fat. And there's been there's kind of two camps that like it's all about calories. Like, your hormones will be fine if your calories are in check. So, go high carb if you can, if your goal is aesthetics. And then the other camp's like, if you go past like 0.5 pounds in body weight, you're going to start having hormonal issues, which I don't completely agree with. But I have a pretty interesting thing happened the other week. I have a membership site uh, where we do like training programs and stuff. And there's always discussions. And a guy asked me this question. And he was, and I was like, yeah, you're dancing on a fine line, man. Cause he was like 0.25, 0.3 grams. Per pound um in fat and he was going really fucking high in uh carbs and he was like well I think you're wrong because I got my hormones tested and he like had everything paneled out and it was like phenomenal testosterone was high and I was like oh
2: how long okay. was he doing that though
0: that I, I do not know I want to like say a like a month
2: two months three months like the context of it yeah
0: yeah longer than a month for sure I can't okay. say longer than two months um yeah. but I was surprised at how like my biggest shock was like how are you adhering to that because it was like between 30 to 40 grams of fat on a regular basis is just, it's just hard, man. It's not fun. Um, but I just want to get your guys' opinion on the whole topic. Like when, when to implement a high carb, low fat, um, Austin, I'm going to let you go first. Cause you seem to be intrigued by this one. <laughs> You're standing uh, well,
2: yeah, well I, I think, um, yeah. So I, I approach a lot of things from the, from the standpoint of, um, making sure that your, your nutrition does match your training. And so if we are doing something that's you know, more on the metabolic side, even hypertrophy, or so more intensifiers, more supersets, shorter rest periods, more pump, like taking longer into fatigue, like that's all very glycolytic type training. Um, and so I think, and you, you to go uh, to uh, expand on what you said, and like some of the best preps or like some of the best bodybuilders we've seen, and say like, okay, they've been high carb, low fat. Okay. Look at their training though. Like their training is so like so glycolytic dominant, um, to the, to the point where they need from like a physiological perspective, from a biochemical perspective, like they need to fuel that with carbs and like their performance will quickly drop and they they will look flat. They'll look, uh, they'll probably look a bit, a little bit more bloated. Like they're going to, uh, in, in, in terms of like, becoming more inflamed um, from that type of training if they don't have enough carbohydrates to help fuel that, not only from a performance perspective, but also recovery perspective. And so I think the way that I, uh, what, the way I think of this is more so in the t- terms of how, to, what does our training look like? Um, because I'll have, I'll have clients go through periods where I do a lower carb, higher fat, um, but it's a very neurological strength-based type uh, stimulus. So I think, it's only, I think it's important as well that we do go through periods of time of changing these things, changing these variables, keeping this, uh, this flexibility uh, alive because if you get too one-sided, um, just like anything else, things just tend to shift in a, in a direction that we don't want to go or maybe isn't the best long-term. So I think... In terms of looking at should we go high carb, should we go low carb, uh, I, I think you need to really audit your training and what stimulus are you trying to elicit? What, what adaptations are you looking for? Uh, and so if you are in something that's lower rep, longer rest period, like you just don't need as many carbohydrates and that could, that could be a good time to go ahead and bring those carbohydrates down. Um, maybe give your digestion a, uh, and your mental sanity uh, some, a break give yourself some different food that you know, maybe haven't eaten in a long time. Cause like to have 30 grams of fat in a day, but have super high carbs and high protein, like as we three know, like that's very limited foods, just like rice, rice, very, <laughs> very low fat lean meats, like maybe ground Turkey, some chicken. Like, you know, if you have like a knife, they make like really lean, um, ground beef like that's like 98.2 or 99 it's like ridiculous uh i think it's also ridiculously expensive but um so like your food choice would be very limited very restricted and so not only from like a a performance perspective or even like a a long-term physique enhancement perspective you got to look at the psych the kind of the psychological perspective of it and almost break that up for them uh, cause again, like, could they theoretically do it? Sure. But as the coach, you kind of have to like, again, giving them a little bit of what they need sprinkled in there. So kind of bringing down that, uh, need for carbohydrates within their training. And I, you're going to benefit, that's going to index a lot better in terms of how they're going to respond to that. And I think where things kind of got mixed up and I'm not, I know when I mention this people are gonna be like yeah or one way or the other but like this is where like the whole CrossFit thing mixed with the low carb thing got really f- kind of fucked for me in terms of watching this happen and unfold because it's like I, I fully support like CrossFit in their community like I think it's one of the coolest things that's happened in the fitness industry in a really really long time and I think if we could all come together as CrossFitters do in, in our side of the community or our side of the industry uh, a lot of things would improve and i think everyone would would be a lot happier um and we could stop debating on all this minutia uh, so so much and just kind of be a, happier and progress um but I, I think within that the really high glycolytic based training paired with like a keto paleo approach not a, like not only from an like you have the high glycolytic type training a lot of olympic Movements like a lot of dangerous movements, um, multi-joint movements that do cause a lot of stress and a lot of mechanical damage, which creates a lot of inflammation. And you, I mean, you're not—all this is almost working against each other in a way. And you got—you have to look at your nutrition in a way that it's like, okay, what type of training am I doing? How do I match that the best? Um, and so I'll just leave that—leave that there.
0: I agree with that. I, I think. We, we saw an influx of people in that situation. We we do nutrition for a lot of CrossFitters too. Um, and we had that same thing. A lot of people come to us and it's just like, how are you even performing like this with so little carbs? It's insane. Um, so I agree with right. you. And, and I agree with you with the plus sides of things. I think it's amazing what CrossFit has done with the culture and everything too. So um, I'll, I'll 100% agree with that. And, and Steve, when, when you go on your answer, I would love to preface like in a perfect world, what do you think too? Because... I, and when I say low fat, I definitely don't mean such such low fat that you're like you're just screwed with all protein sources and everything like that. But relatively low fat um, in a perfect world, as adherence wise, do you think it is beneficial for the typical person reaching aesthetics, usually in the moderate to high rep ranges? Um, because typical people who are training for muscle or fat loss are typically staying majority of their training eight plus reps. Let's just say that, and their volume is going to be higher. Um, Uh, which I can't believe I didn't add to this. Oh, I did add volume at the bottom. Okay, good. Um, (laughs) Because I got to bring that up. But um, Steve, I just want to preface that like adherence is golden. Like what do you think?
1: So I thought this is going to be a really boring podcast. We're all just going to agree, but uh, CrossFit (laughs) sucks. (laughs) No, I'm joking. I'm joking. I I actually really do agree. Um, I love the community and everything with that. I was just listening to Austin. I was like, man, I just agree with everything he's saying. I have to say something else. (laughs) Um, But it's really interesting. to hear about kind of the minimum fat intake uh, for which you touched on because we actually don't know at the moment what is the minimum fat intake we don't know how low you can go and be healthy there's not kind of any kind of formal evidence to say that there is a cut-off point like how how low can you go Uh, which is super interesting because I mean as long as you're getting your essential fatty acids potentially you could go quite low and um, I only know of one case study online where this I, I think her name I won't say the name just in case she doesn't want her name out there, but she eats basically, I think, fish and potatoes and sushi. And her fat intake is incredibly low. Uh, she just takes her essential fatty acids and she says she feels fantastic. And who, who am I to say that she has to have more fat? And if, like the guy you kind of talked to, his blood panel came back and he's in great health and physically feels great, um, I think that's a, a fine for him then if he enjoys that and can adhere to it. And theoretically, like you said, kind of what would be ideal, theoretically, like Austin was saying, matching your kind of uh, nutritional intake towards your training, it makes great sense that if you're doing high volume hypertrophy training, and we think about how important volume is for hypertrophy and to a point, the more you can do and recover from is going to lead to even more hypertrophy. And if you can commit to that and you can fuel that with a higher carbohydrate intake because carbohydrates are what you're going to be using most, um, theoretically, you're going to be maximizing your potential growth there. And then you can talk about potential avenues of like, oh, you've got a higher insulin kind of load because you're having more total carbohydrate intake that might have some potential anabolic avenues and things like that. It's very, very interesting. Um, So in terms of what I end up doing, Uh, I think for me, the practical lower limit for most people is like uh, 0.3 per pound seems to be the lower limit for most people. So that seems to work most of the time or like half a gram, uh, 0.5 per kilo up to one gram per kilo tends to be the range that I work people within because it seems to be a practical range and anything lower than that isn't necessarily going to provide much more it's still pretty damn low fat if you're going 0.5 grams per kilo that's pretty low Um, and you're then maximizing kind of uh, your carbohydrate intake from that again theoretically supporting more training volume recovering from more training volume and providing potentially a more anabolic route i then agree with austin in terms of matching it with the training you're doing so i definitely incorporate periods to which you go lower volume, uh, like with the deloads, but also just lower volume periods of time where you ma- might be just maintaining. And I would then just go towards a protein and calorie track because essentially I don't think there's the requirement for the carbohydrates. And that allows people to have a little bit more of the kind of fattier foods and get in some of those kind of quote unquote healthy fats and things. Uh, but even with the 0.5, um, grams per kilo, there's enough room there to be able to get in like some salmon if you wanted to, that's I consume salmon on a regular basis and I pretty much stick to that lower end. Um, But it does require a lot of cereals and rice products and fruits and uh, it's only really for the serious person. And I don't think it's a huge difference if you were to go to just protein in total calories. uh, I don't think that person versus the person who stuck to the higher carb, lower fat approach is going to see wildly better results but it might be marginally better especially over years of doing it and if it's something someone can consist to or adhere to rather i think it could be fine uh, it could be a really positive thing for them
0: i something i think it will be important for people to know too is like uh the type of fats you're consuming within that. Um, if you're getting the essential fats, you're getting omega threes, you're getting a balance across the different types of fats. Um, I think you might be able to get away with a lower fat approach. Um, and some people are just self-aware. I haven't had this a lot, but I had one guy recently, I got him ready for a photo shoot. Um, and we're reversing now. He was probably, he wasn't stage ready, but probably four weeks away from stage. Like he got pretty shredded for this photo shoot in when we were reversing him back up, like as soon as we passed like the 65 gram mark, and I want to say he's probably like 188, 190 pounds. He was like, oh, thank God, man. As soon as we went below 65, I just really felt it. And like this week I felt so much better as soon as we hit 65. And I don't know if that's a placebo thing or if he's really that self-aware, but I was like, wow, that's like good on you, man. And, and I kind of know my range too. Like when I go below a certain point, I'm like, okay, I kind of feel like shit. But then again, it could be the calories. Um, the only thing I would, I would like to pose as a question is, In a fat loss phase, do you think, and this might be indirectly because training might be spared more, um, or if it's just carbs are more protein-sparing, do you think maintaining muscle mass during a cut is more likely on a higher-carb approach versus a a higher-fat approach? Austin, I'll let you start. That's a good question.
2: I I don't know. Um, I'm good to say I don't know. I'd honestly... I would go more on, top, on the on the side of higher carbs, probably being a better approach and less stressful on your on your total system, um, because as we know, if carbs aren't there, we have to basically start to create glucose from other things, um, which puts stress on other organs, puts stress on you systemically, um, and it's going to kind of lower that that threshold of what we can allot to other, other processes like recovery, um, and, and new growth, for example. So I would probably go like moderate to higher
1: carb, um, for my answer. Steve. Yeah, I would agree. I think probably the higher carb approach is going to again, support training probably best. And when we're trying to maintain muscle kind of training is the biggest key to be maintaining that muscle. So I think because it will be fueling training and recovery most in that scenario, it's probably going to support superior muscle retention.
0: Cool. Let's get, let's move on. But one thing to add real quick, just I thought about this and I forgot to mention, I was listening to your podcast the other day, Steve, and you mentioned, uh, you just mentioned that you're, cons- you're doing a more of a low carb approach, but you said you're consuming like 600 grams of carbs per day. So kudos to is you that, to be able to, to low carb no i'm assuming he's no you're low fat with 600 grams oh yeah i think said he's low carb and he's doing 600 i
2: was like <laughs> that's Go you,
0: man. kudos to you to playing the the macros game to be able to fit that in um and this question actually kind of uh i was more excited about after listening to your last podcast with eric helms because he mentioned he was he seemed like he was prepping on a pretty low low fat intake as well um and it's just always intriguing to me to see what other people are doing um and i think it's something that more people do do inside the bodybuilding community, but don't necessarily talk about publicly. So I wanted to put it out there. But um, the next question is probably going to be quick, not much of a debate, but I have to put it out there because I get it time and time again. It's the protein recommendations. And ever since I had uh, Jose Antonio on the show, it's just been like people, it, it goes two ways. Like he did the study of two grams per pound, which is too much protein. You don't need that much, but it showed that we're probably not going to get harmed. And then there's a lot of people who claim that that is actually extremely bad can cause cancer is going to damage your kidneys, like all this crazy stuff. And I'm unaware of any studies that actually prove that. But I also don't recommend people to consume that much protein, because you're probably just going to be bloated and feel like shit, there's no extra benefit. But um, protein recommendations, do you guys have specific guidelines you stick to? Um, And and when does that change as far as cutting and uh, lean gaining? And, And Steve, we'll start with you on this one.
1: Cool. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not aware of any studies to support those sort of claims. I, I don't know where this fear mongering really comes from. There's actually a lot of convincing evidence that we can have really high protein intakes and be able to do quite well off them potentially, um, although pretty damn hard to adhere to. And you also take away from fats and carbs, which are important to a certain extent. Uh, so, my recommendations t- for, for the most part, most of the people I work with, to be quite honest, aren't going to go below one gram per pound not just because like, I, I don't necessarily think going below that is warranted. Um, they just don't want to adhere to that. They, they like protein, but I work with people that just love to eat that. And I guess it's because my guys are more kind of physique orientated. So they want to have a higher protein intake. I would take them down to as low as 0.8 grams uh, per pound. I think that's been quite comfortably supported to be fine. Um, probably not so much in a dieting state uh, because muscle protein synthesis is going to be somewhat suppressed when you are dieting. I do prefer to have a higher intake and that's up to 1.2 grams per pound. Generally seems to be the higher end that I like to go to sometimes pushing higher. If people are really struggling to adhere and they're not kind of worried about losing potentially some fat or carbohydrate intake and we're kind of meeting minimum requirements for those. So I tend to range between 0.8 to 1.2 for most people setting about one gram per pound. Uh, for myself and for people who are on like, high carb massing. And they get a lot of kind of carbohydrates from things like bagels. I think uh, two uh, New York bagels that I just consumed have like almost 20 grams of protein. And I guess it's all from gluten. So uh, it's not the highest quality. So I tend to raise protein intakes for those sort of individuals as well. I had a really vague rule of thumb of, well, vague, I kind of looked into it, but every 100 grams of carbs, you get around 20 grams of protein on average, which I would to say it's just lower quality, it's not got a full amino acid profile. So I tend to count half of that. So per every 100 grams of carbs, I tend to add 10 grams to someone's protein intake as like a really like, bro buffer, basically, because we just want to have more, it makes meals a bit more enjoyable, you're not having a bowl of pasta of like half a chicken breast. um, And potentially, you're getting the benefits of having that protein. So yeah, that's where I tend to go.
0: I like that. And and fully admit, like, I've always kind of done something similar and i actually heard you say that on a podcast a really long time ago man and i stole that of like a rule of thumb of adding when when i bring somebody's carbs up and it's a really good um bro rule of thumb or whatever you want to call it um but i like it man i think it's great austin
2: yeah i I would say that's i think you could categorize it bro but i think it's just logical I, i don't think like and I don't know if we're discrediting it by saying bro, but like, I just think it's like, that makes logical sense to me. I think thinking logically and critically about something goes a long way, so uh, kudos. So in terms of me, I think anywhere from like 0.8 to 1.4 is typically where I would go or stay. And again, like that's, that's adding on to what Steve said in terms of some of my gym pop clients, especially females, um, and they could be smaller females and I could have them on a higher, again, like higher, more carb-driven type of training stimulus. And so to get their minimum fat requirement and to get enough carbs to really fuel that training, I will bring their, their protein down um, to that kind of like 0.8. And for me, again, because like, and like looking deeper into that, like their training is more concentrically dominant um, and not a lot of time spent in eccentrics or pauses in the lengthened position, for example, um, so at the bottom of a squat, like they're not pausing for like a one or two count, it's kind of just hit the bottom and go up. Uh, so, or if I, if I would even have squats in a program like that, it could be more, uh, like banded hack squat where it's like top banded to where the, the, <clears throat> you're not getting as much of that load at the bottom. So it's a accommodating resistance, uh, to like limit the eccentric damage that you're getting there and then getting more of it as you hit the mid range. Uh, in a hack squat or like spending more time in leg extensions for example just to keep with like leg movements um so i'm saying that to preface like if we're not having as much mechanical damage logically in my head maybe i don't need to just jack up protein just to jack up protein especially in a female that is a smaller female that isn't more like needs carbs to fuel the training and recovery and get good sleep and all of this stuff um and then to the opposite end of the scale like you know i do have, like i i have a guy that right now that's uh two weeks out um and he's like hitting low cows on like 2600 2800 calories um so you can imagine what his gaining phases <laughs> look like um so i mean we could consistently do have to have like 800 grams of carbs and so things like that it's kind of like okay well I'm looking more towards the 1.4 because I'm trying to make up, again, for those added carbohydrates and added protein, again, from like things like gluten and things that don't have a complete amino acid profile. So yeah, my, my answer is rooted in kind of like that 0.8 to 1.4, and then I kind of try to take a deeper look at the type of training they're doing. So if it's more mechanically damage-driven, then it's like lo- bit longer eccentrics, longer pauses in the bottom are where it's where the the force is greatest there. Uh, again, like accentuating mechanical damage. Then again, I'll kind of raise up, intuitively raise up protein um, to try to like fulfill some maybe some extra requirements that are needed during that phase. Um, Again, that's kind of like more rooted in logic and critical thinking. Uh, And I've seen it work and clients seem to be happy about it um, during phases like that, uh, especially when it's explained, um, not just kind of like thrown thrown at them, but yeah, anywhere from 0.8 to 1.4.
0: I like that, man. I actually really like the way you articulated that you definitely took it a different direction and went pretty deep, but I enjoy that kind of stuff. I think it's good to look at different aspects of things and be able to apply it. Um, and going back to like what Steve said at the beginning, like the fear mongering, it just, it's so left field. Like we don't really know where it's coming from people are just saying these statements with really no logical backing behind it um and if you don't want to eat a lot and this is what i think is funny the people who agree with us and and look at the research and use that we'll say like we don't care if you don't eat protein like what you eat doesn't make me shit so do your thing but there's no reason to hate on people for consuming the right amount of protein based on what studies show
2: have you read have you read um the new mark manson everything's fucked have you read that book yet not yet um so he talks about in that book, I, I really like Mark Manson as an author. I think he's a great writer, but and you see, he just, he writes a lot like I, he talks and writes a lot like I talk and write. Um, and it's very conversational. It's kind of like throw, throw things in here and there and like try to intellectually articulate your way through kind of a bullshit uh, conversation. Because um, a lot of the things we talk about are kind of like, are we seriously talking about this? Um, so in that book, it's kind of like he sets it up in terms of like these ideology um these ideology religions in the sense of like or a, a social religion and so if we're looking at kind of like he puts in everything in context of like a religion and like there's always a there's always a kind of like a goal behind it and then there's always a scapegoat like you then you can blame throw blame at and so it's it's kind of that philosophy of like you're look you're either and i actually read this yesterday and i actually thought about about um the kind of like the religion almost of what's gone evidence-based and what's gone bro like it's almost like there isn't a gray area anymore and it's almost like if you're not with us you're against us and i'm very much rooted as like i associate with evidence-based and obviously like we're in this discussion um and i'm i'm with i'm here with you guys so uh, i just want to make that very clear but i i just don't like almost that aspect of like that that religion mentality of like if you're not with us you're against us and i I just don't think that's always true um so i i think that there needs to be a level of you know and eric helms talks a lot about this like the level of critical thinking that it takes to not only expand people's mind of like well what if we what if we did look at this you know through through a microscope like what if we did and like meaning that like what if we did study that you know because without arguments without kind of like throwing in like what if that's not true? You know, or kind of combating some of like some things that have been proven that have since been disproven. Um, It took someone to kind of like, wait, maybe not To, to say that to be like, okay, well, let's look at it again. You know, test, retest, test, retest, kind of that scientific method in a way of like, looking at what we have and what we know, and like, never taking that for face value, and always kind of being able to stay open minded. And and move towards that i know i'm getting off track but i think it's important to um to understand that further i think it's kind of like that religion mentality of um and a religion can mean anything it doesn't have to be uh, in terms of looking at like uh one god or many gods it's just anything that you look at there's like this this us versus them mentality um so i think that's very rooted in us like from an evolutionary evolutionary perspective um if you're not with us you're against us kind of like whether it's tribal or whether it's literally been brought up and ingrained in us through, you know, thousands of years of religion. Um, that it's kind of like that mentality of like, if you, again, like if you aren't with us, you're against us. And I think that's kind of where things come from is like people create their own cults. They create their own religion. And I think CrossFit is a religion. Um, I, I think evidence-based is a religion. I think, I think all these things are religions in, in ways. Cause like they're kind of like touted in, like, obviously like the evidence-based one is rooted in like i'm literally trying to help you um but within that and like trying to stay true to science which i'd say science is probably the most reliable religion that we do have but within saying within that obviously there's egos that kind of sprinkle themselves in and like pull more one side than the other and i think those are in every industry and we can't really help who kind of like sprinkles those in. but um, very positive religion of looking at like the evidence-based versus other things but it's nonetheless um a religion but i know i got super off track there but i thought that was very <laughs> I somehow i guess like in my head i was like this is
0: relatable <laughs> so um, I, I, hopefully that was incredible. i think it is man i think people need to understand that there's always a balance to be made it's usually a middle ground and and just like you can't write off any type of evidence because you don't agree with it. You can't even write off bro things that are quote unquote bro because there's been things that were bro that actually got proved by evidence later on or that just work and it takes so long to do a study or you need the right funding and it won't get funded that we'll never really know. So I think having an open mind is the key and I think that's true. And something to just add like, and I mean this as a compliment, you're a very stoic individual, man. Like I thought about this <laughs> last you. time, the beard adds to it, but you're very stoic <laughs> in philosophy. I love it, dude. It's like last time we started the podcast, it went in a completely different (laughs) direction with our conversation. I was like, man, I feel like. If you hang
2: out with, like if you if we, again, spend more than, uh, if you spend any time with me, you'll realize I don't, I love the X's and O's of training. Um, And obviously that's what I do for a living and kind of specialize in. But like, I don't talk about it (laughs) like that much. I more or less like, like the other day, I I kind of, uh, I was like walking down my hallway in my apartment. I'm like, what do you think like think about monsters inc and like behind each one of these doors there's like this whole universe and it's like we could break that down and unpack that and it's like that's what goes through my head um and then you know i'm here to talk about protein too but you know (laughs) i think uh i think what you learn a lot about something it's kind of like you kind of okay now i've learned all this stuff and it's like now my mind creatively gets to journey into the unknown and kind of expand my mind in different ways um Hopefully, intentionally, you know, not like getting lost, but like we're I not, am right now in this podcast.
0: We're not high right now, for those listening.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm no longer in Colorado. I'm actually in Indiana, so you can. So you know, it's funny, dude. And break like weed with me.
0: I was driving with my fiance. This is probably a couple of weeks ago, and we we're driving, and we're at an intersection, and I go, "You ever just think that?" every single car we see right now is a different individual on a different journey, going to a different place to do a different thing and experience a different, like, and I went on this like yeah. long trail and
2: she
0: looked at me like, what are you talking about? But I was like, sometimes I just, I just think crazy shit. So, um, <laughs> but not to go too deep on that. Uh, we're going to, we're going to touch on a couple of training questions before we close this out. Um, and the first one to, Again, this is there's never a definitive answer to this, but I want to talk about the best training splits and, and I, I don't think there is a best training split, but however I do think there are a few best training splits to optimize volume intensity and frequency, obviously adherence comes into play so Assuming adherence isn't an issue, I want to get your guys' takes on like the top couple of training splits that you believe in that you think are going to uh, kind of take advantage of what we know about volume training and, or uh, intensity and frequency um, and what you just see in your experience most importantly um, because sometimes it can be out of context. Like I know that, you know, if you're training six days a week in the gym, maybe a push pull legs or even like a upper lower, upper lower, upper lower, technically that could be a great amount of volume and frequency. However, that's a lot of days in the gym and actually could cause some issues for some individuals because it's too much stress, not enough recovery. Um, So I just kind of want to get your general take on, on the best training splits and Steve we'll start with you on this one.
1: Cool. So I think the first thing I think about is what's the requisite volume that person needs to get in for that week and then kind of divvying that up between sessions that seems appropriate so for someone quite advanced probably more is going to be better for them so like a six day training split i wouldn't train more than six times a week i do like one training day off because for psychological reasons Big time because I think, whilst people think going to the gym every single day is kind of hardcore, I think you're probably likely to burn out after a while. So I think it's quite important for that. And then, physiological reasons like just recovering, like one day, come on, you can take that day off. So, um, but then, someone more novice, three days a week. Probably get the, a sufficient volume in through big compound lifts, uh, really good stimulus to fatigue ratio in terms of kind of you're getting a lot of bang per buck, you're getting a lot of muscle groups. You're not super strong, so you're not getting massively beat up, and you can do a fair amount of volume within that session. Uh, so you, that, those are kind of the extremes, but within that, you can unpack it a little bit in terms of frequency. I do like to consider kind of recovery curves of exercises. So for something like a Romanian deadlift. How quick are you going to recover from doing three sets of that? Uh, are you going to recover in two days, three days? Kind of how is that going to impact your frequency of hamstring training? Uh, maybe you're recovered enough after two days to do a leg curl, but not so recovered to be able to do another eccentric loading, kind of straight leg deadlift or Romanian deadlift again. Um, so the, those are some of the things to consider. And then more frequent, frequent, uh, frequent. more recently, it's come out um, that there may be a kind of maximum amount of work you'd want to do in a session for a muscle group in that past that point you're not any more stimulating the muscle you're more so just creating more damage Um, and that is just going to go towards essentially junk volume and actually just create fatigue and it's not going to be stimulating anymore Uh, so that seems to be potentially around 10 sets for a muscle group which is quite high but if you're doing like a push pull leg split uh, and you're doing three exercises for like a chest or a back muscle, then you could be doing, if you're working up towards high volumes and you can recover from it, you've got plenty of recoverability. Like three sets on each is probably not out of this world for you. Um, or if you're doing like four exercises, you do three sets on each, you're already breaching that. So then you might think about, oh, maybe I can split up my back training a bit further. So these are some of the things I consider. A lot of people just think about kind of upper, lower, push, pull legs. Whereas in fact, I like to really look at an individual level, each muscle group, how fast is it recovering? So for me, for example, I can literally train probably my abs and my calves every single day and they just can recover because I have small muscle bellies, small, they're just small and uh, they can just take so much damage because I guess they're very used to it, potentially very slow twitch. They can endure a lot. Uh, So I can actually, and I need thicker abs as a bodybuilder and I need bigger calves as a bodybuilder and I've got the time and energy. So I will train those every single day if I need to um, as much as possible without taking away from other things. But when I say taking away from other things, there are things to think about because it's like, well, maybe I can train my back three days a week, but I'm also potentially training kind of my lower body. Then when do I want to be doing more of my kind of horizontal pulling where potentially I'm putting my lower back kind of a fatigue risk. Maybe I want to place my vertical pulling in a position whereby I can put that before a lower body session. So my lower back isn't so fatigued and I can actually put a good stimulus into that leg workout, or maybe I put a lot of kind of chest supported rowing. So there's a lot of moving parts. And then you have to even consider things like, okay, when you're doing a pull up, like your tricep is somewhat activated in that. And there's like, there's fatigue costs there. So without making it sound really, really complicated, I would look at the, your total volume requirements for that week. Think about kind of what split, how many days can you train and try and divvy it up between those days where you think a muscle group is going to be recovered. Uh, one thing I didn't touch on is probably minimum amounts of volume to do within a muscle group for a session so you probably don't want to go into a workout and do like one set of squats because the amount of time that that's going to take to warm up to uh, versus the amount of kind of what you're going to get out of that you're going to like just be ready do one set and you're going to be like right yeah i've got two more sets no you're over you've got another set the next day and that's just going to take forever so like um, you want to think about efficiency there and also there's some elements of Potentially better my muscle connection as you do multiple sets, potentially metabolite accumulation. That's going to have some potential hypertrophic benefits. So maybe two to three sets is like your minimum. Uh, thinking about 10 is maybe a, a working maximum. And then working through that and thinking about kind of when is my muscle group going to be realistically recovered by? And then you can set up your training split there. Hopefully that didn't sound just
0: like gobbledygook. (laughs) No, it did. It's, uh, I mean, apparently you don't like the one set Dorian Yates style training. um, I think it's really, it's a creative approach, right? Like you really have to understand the athlete and, and obviously it takes a more advanced individual or somebody with more data. Like when somebody comes into your coaching and they're like, this is what I've been doing. And they have an Excel sheet of their training for the last six months. It's like, okay, this is more to work with versus somebody who, doesn't have any data like they've just been program hopping for that person we kind of have to start from scratch and build into that um and i think that's an interesting approach and not to keep referencing the same podcast but i thought it was interesting how eric helms talked about that with his legs like the way he like separates his legs throughout the week because they don't need as much volume as his upper body does to grow and it just kind of gives you a new perspective to the volume landmarks they're good but there's such a big curve between like where you're at and like what you need as an individual versus what these individuals saw in the study. And I think people need to remember that. Um, so I like the way you articulate that dude really good. Um, Austin, I'll pass the mic to you.
2: Uh, thanks man. So like we talked about in our last podcast, Cody, uh, like again, like those volume landmark landmarks are very relative and should be taken as, uh, just that, you know, very relative and very individual. And each muscle has its own kind of recovery capacity in, a, in its own way. And, its ability to kind of handle stress locally. And then you have your ability to handle stress systemically uh, and how that's taken uh, into account in terms of your, your programming. And then um, again, like looking at uh, stimulus fatigue ratios, things like that. Um, So looking at, I think Steve did a really good job at talking about the framework. Uh, I know he got kind of detailed there, um, but the framework of what Steve said, I I highly agree with and the way you divvy up your volume and, whether you're a beginner, intermediate, advanced, like how many days per week? Theoretically, do you need to train to adequately get that volume in and get enough stress uh, to create an adaptation? Um, and so, uh, it's just like this is where, um, my, from my perspective, this is where things like uh, things like exercise execution and tempo, like tempo, do come into account. Um, I think as you get more advanced, the you have to look at your ability to create tension. How much? Because that's that fatigue stimulus ratio will, in the same like it's not just like per movement we have this. I think generally we have like a per movement stimulus fatigue ratio, but I think an individual in the in themselves can sway that because of their ability to create tension. Um, or execute a movement for example like if you just have a client that's very beginner and they're doing they're doing a row and they're basically like a horizontal rowing movement and they're basically using everything under the sun to move that thing um, obviously in terms of like lats that <laughs> who knows right how much actual tension or you know uh, fatigue or stimulus was given to the lats for example in the, in that horizontal row and then you could look at even the execution down to the, the minutiae of like, what's their elbow angle? What attachment are they using? Are they even in a good place to leverage their lots? Or is it more Terries? Is it more rear delt? Like there's just, there's, there's a lot of things you can think about. And like, I don't want to, again, as you know, Steve got in more into the minutiae. I don't want to overcomplicate it, but I, there there are things as you get more advanced um, and even like more intermediate that you can start considering like why improving my execution may be good or um why tempo may matter you know so in an rdl for example if you're doing 3 to 4 second eccentrics that systemic fatigue will take you especially like depending on the recovery capacity of your hamstrings like that's going to take you pretty long to, probably for me for example like that's at least 3 days like if i'm doing 4 or 5 sets of like 3 to 4 3 to 4 second eccentric rdls and like loading my spine even from that perspective, like systemically, that's just a lot. And then for my hamstrings, that's a lot of damage being done. It's a lot of stimulus. So that needs to be taken into account. And so like, based off that, how else could I strategically add volume, for example? So if like, I'm trying to kind of, I wanna get more volume on my hamstrings, for example, but I, I know that maybe I could cut some of the volume off my RDLs and do things that are a little bit more concentrically dominant like a lying leg curl for example and maybe just pause at the top and like really contract at that top position because that's going to be again you can accumulate volume you can accumulate fatigue but you have less eccentric load you have less eccentric damage being done within that which is going to be less recovery time um in in and of itself so again i don't i could go deep rabbit hole here, but I don't, I don't want to just because like, I don't think it's going to be helpful for most of you. So, um, and it's not good to get lost in the minutia. As we said in the very beginning of the podcast that I don't want to be forgotten, do the big things right consistently. Um, and I, I when in 2017, I heard, uh, Eric, <laughs> Eric, the godfather of the godfather himself, apparently in this podcast. Um, I'm a big fan of Eric, but, in 2017, I was in Australia at the, at their event that they were hosting with JPS. Um, and, you know, Eric kind of went on his spiel during his presentation and talked about the, you know, the big rocks and the pebbles and that sort of thing. And that was like, that's super, that hit home for me. And it's like, just do the, that's where that kind of that do the big things, right. Consistently come in. Um, so in terms of like breaking down and like setting up your training, understand these volume landmarks as a framework, understand how much volume you, at least on average need, um, per muscle group, um, get a rough, you know, be within probably two to four sets of that, and then recalibrate as you're going through your different mesocycles and, uh, change it up if you need to, or keep going or, you know, keep in terms of progressive overload and keeping that going, which progressive overload could be again, improving execution. It could be reducing rest periods. It could be, Increasing load. It could be like, you you know, you get what I'm kind of going like there's not everything is multi-dimensional And I think where we get into trouble is what think making everything so one-dimensional or even two-dimensional it's like this could be three or four dimensions that we're not even like there's two dimensions that we're not even considering here that I I think should be on the table and in in the discussion. So again, I don't want to make it too complicated, but as a framework I, I really agree with Steve set it up in a way that you think you can have that really good framework. So if it's, if you're a beginner, three days could be adequate, four days could be adequate. If you're someone that is more advanced, you're just going to have to like, if you are, if you are reaching that stage where you're hitting six days a week and you need six days a week and you're into that, like you live it, you're probably stoked about that. But if you're someone that's like, ah, you know, I kind of like it, maybe I don't, but I I do kind of want to still advance um, and progress in my physique. It's like you maybe just have to swallow that pill and you have to do enough, like have five or six days a week where you're training because that's the only way you're going to see that progression. Um, and one thing to add to that, I, I know we kind of talked about it in our last podcast, Cody, and that was I don't like to feel, I personally don't like to feel overly just beat up and torn um, Cause the rest of your life has to still happen. Uh, so, you know, like you go home from a training session and if you can't form a thought, cause you're just so beat or you can't literally go out and do out your, do your normal life. Cause you're either so beat mentally or so sore physically. Like for me, it's a trade-off game as well. And like, what's, what is that trade-off? So am I reaching my full potential physically? Maybe not, but am I reaching my full potential in the rest of the, all, the rest of the areas of my life? I'm working on it. And like, where is the level of like, where's the hierarchy of importance there for you? And so if it is physically fucking crush it, man, like get after it, be as sore as you want to be like that you can recover from, like get after that. But if you're someone like me, that's kind of like, I do kind of want to keep progressing. That's super important. And I think this is maybe where Steve and I would differ in terms of like our wants and desires out of physique. Like Steve's like one of the most dedicated people I've ever seen. And that's amazing to watch. And it's super inspiring. And I'm just, I like to watch it, but I don't like to, I'm not Steve. And that, that's okay, right? Um, and like, I will, you know, for example, like, I will skip a, a, a session if I think like something else on my hierarchy of importance comes up. I'll just be like, oh, well, this is above that on my hierarchy of importance. And I'll move the session or I'll just make, try to make up for it later. Um, and if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. And so it's like kind of like having the hierarchy of importance. So if you're someone that physically that is super high on your hierarchy of importance, that's not wrong. It's just, you need to kind of have that established. And I think making sacrifices and moving your life around and structuring and modeling your life and the framework of everything around that again is going to come into play. And like, you know, for you, for example, Cody, like you have a family, you have, you know, you have a kid to take care of and like, there's things that like, you do have a kid, right? I'm not misspeaking. There. Yeah. I was like, that's yeah. a, I was like <laughs> I'm not just blowing this up. I'm not just making this up. Right. Um, so like, there's just, there's different things, right. That do come up. Um, so on top of the framework, it's what is optimal make like in terms of like the best way to train for your physique enhancement may not be optimal for the rest of your life. And you have to either be okay with that or move, move some things around in your other parts of your life to make, to facilitate the, the the physique enhancement part
0: yeah i think at the end of the day like to kind of try to summarize everything that was thrown out there is there's so much that goes into creating a training plan for somebody and the most important thing for people to realize is it's just a way of organizing all these different methods and tools and science that we just threw out there like it's just a way to organize it all so it works for you right if you're not progressing organize it in a different way if you're not recovering organize it in a different way but figure out what works for you and what's going to allow you to kind of hit these landmarks for you personally and just move forward um and i, and I like the way you you finish that awesome because i think it's so important for people to know that it's different across the board um,
2: yeah. i think i wanted to mention just one more thing i think i wanted to mention those things not to confuse people or you know <laughs> for steve and i to like basically articulate our intellect around the area it's just it's this it's the fact of the matter this isn't Mm one-dimensional like this isn't like you do this 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 and this is the outcome it's like there's so many things that theoretically could be a part of the equation and that are a part of the equation it's again like where do we i almost just want to open people's minds to the idea that there is more it's not that you have to understand all of it again like this is why all three of us have jobs like It's our job to know about it, um, not necessarily yours as a listener. So I just, I I think I mentioned those things just because I want people's minds to be a little bit more open and critically think about things like, okay, it's not just that I'm training my hamstrings. It's like, how am I training my hamstrings? How am I loading my hamstrings? Am I loading with a barbell? Does this load my spine? Okay, it does load my spine. Then I probably shouldn't load my spine again have like with a heavy movement day even the next day how fatigued am I am I in a deficit like there's all of these things that do go into it and it's not that you have to kill yourself by keeping track of it it's just you have to be open-minded and know that this maybe is four or five dimensions not just one
0: yeah I 100% agree man I think this is actually a good transition to the last question and and you kind of stated um, your thoughts on the last podcast we did and you kind of just summarized it there too with just it's more than just volume, like volume is very important. Uh, But if you're not, like we used the row as an example on the last podcast, which is a really good one, the positioning of your shoulder and elbow completely changed what you're targeting inside of a a dumbbell row or a cable row or any kind of row. Um, So if your technique and your execution isn't on point, is the volume really the volume you think it is? Um, But the last question was kind of just that like volume versus technique, is there an order of importance? Uh, Do you need to like have a block where you're like, I'm just going to focus on learning activation, learning technique, learning execution. Um, does junk volume count for anything? Do cheat reps count for anything? And, and the reason I pose this question is I was actually listening to a podcast. I can't remember who it was on. Um, I obviously listen to a lot of podcasts, but they were interviewing, uh, Ben Pekulski. And he basically said, volume is irrelevant if you don't know how to execute a movement. Um, which is a bold statement. Um, I don't know if I completely agree but um I get where he's going with that and I think Austin you are you really explained it well on our last podcast when we talked about this but Steve I want to get your take on it as well.
1: Cool yes yeah. so I think um I w- I almost want to agree with Ben. I think it's a really like harsh statement I, again I think you can probably pick it apart where it's not completely valid but I certainly think the foundation of your training is technique and I wish I knew that when I first started as I would have kind of progressed a lot faster I wouldn't have the injuries I currently have today but if, if it's just like I, I would analogize it towards like driving a car if you if you don't know how to drive that car, but you go and you go and buy the most expensive car and sit in it, you're not going to really get to your destination quicker than the guy who knows how to drive a car, but it's completely beat up. Like he knows what he's doing; he's going to get to his goals, whereas you're just going to sit in that car and like fiddle your thumbs for a long time and have women wink wink at you on the way. So um, in the gym, you could be ego lifting, lifting massively heavy weights, but uh, if you're not feeling and placing that tension in the right place you're not only not creating stimulus to that muscle group to produce a hypertrophic outcome, you're also creating a ton of fatigue to other areas. So there is definitely a massive cost in terms of junk volume, essentially, and the fatigue that's going to generate and the potential risk of injury that that is going to come from that. Uh, It's always horrible to see the people in like other people in the gym and you just see the mistakes you used to make with the technique that you're using, and you can be putting in a lot of effort into it. Like doing a heavy bent over row that has a lot of momentum is damn hard. Like just swinging it like a, an ape, like that's still incredibly fatiguing, um, and that is really hard work. But you're not translating that to the muscle. You have to put and place that tension in the right place, um, and I think that's why. When you first get into the gym it is one hundred percent about execution and technique and learning that because just like you don 't know how to really drive a car when you first get in it and you, or even riding a bike you can 't really ride a bike properly you 're like wibbling and wobbling all over the place you haven 't even got the neuromuscular kind of technique down but like you can 't place stimulus on a muscle group if you don 't know how to train and do that lift effectively so um, I certainly think technique comes way before you think about volume and the great thing is you don't need much volume to grow when you're a newbie. You need like basically nothing. So um, for sure, if there's anyone listening who is kind of getting into it or they're not sure if their technique's on point, like take it back a step. And remember, like Austin said, progressive overload can come from technique improvement because you're going you're gonna to place more tension on that muscle and it will produce more growth and long term way more growth
0: i love it i agree i think the the thing i was going to add was just that like usually when people need to work on technique they're so new in the game that it volume is irrelevant because you don't need to work on it necessarily um i think as you progress you need to start considering volume and the better you get you just need to really prioritize it because it does come into play quite a bit i don't think it's the the holy grail or the end all be all but um austin do you have anything to add to that i know you primarily agree with him but any thoughts
2: uh yeah so i i think uh yeah, Steve said it really well, and I'm really honestly proud that he's articulated it in that way, because uh, I think we're, we've moved really forward in this uh, kind of, it's not even a debate. I, again, like, I think we just moved forward in this conversation over the past couple of years, which is really exciting to me um, that, because again, like, I think we go through waves of like, no, this is the most important, and this is the most important. No, this is the most important. And it's like, everything is so integrated that it's like, it's all important, okay? And there, there is like this, again, like hierarchy of importance with it and everything, but everything's important, okay? And again, like some things benefit you more by giving a little bit more about them. But I, I will say, um, it's essentially like, I'll give a metaphor, or, or an, I guess a metaphor, it would be analogy or metaphor, what's the definition there?
0: Simple. Uh, I think a so, metaphor A metaphor. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I don't know. It's not that <laughs> <laughs> I get lost in my own mind. Um, so this is like, so you're, you're, you're going in the gem. This is me like critically thinking through it. You're going in the gem to lift weights, right? This is the fundamental skill. This is the fundamental activity of what we're doing today. We go into the gem. I'm going to try and lift weights, right? Well, if that's the, reason I'm there I should probably get better at doing that that makes like that makes complete sense to me right yeah and it's like if you're going to play basketball for example because I think there's a limit there's an upper limit to this and I'm going to explain it so yes that's a fundamental skill that we need to master we need to get good at it but do we need to be able to again there's a there's a point at which of diminishing returns where you're just spending way too much time and you're not putting enough effort into other things. And so for like, let's, let's say basketball, for example, you learn how to dribble really well. Okay. I can dribble two balls really well. Okay. That, that for, I, cause like I, I have a basketball background, pretty heavy one. And so it's like the hand-eye coordination and the, the ability to maneuver with two separate and be ambidextrous in that way is very important. But do I need to be able to dribble three or four basketballs the same way I dribble one or two? that's mm, nah, probably a waste of my time I should probably work on my shooting like I should focus on something else right and that's kind of like my analogy I guess it would be an analogy right I guess that's my analogy um before
1: Steve's over <laughs> here like yeah ask. that um, now is an amount ima- <laughs> I was like I need to hear what you're gonna say before I can tell you which yes, it is
2: <laughs> right I know I asked that I I didn't I didn't do that in the right order but <laughs> um but basically um, what I'm saying is here like there's a there's a there's a trade-off and there's a kind of this like point of diminishing returns of execution once you get it to a certain level all right we're there now this is why it's super important like especially as a beginner that you're not just changing exercises to change them because you need to go to a certain level in a movement to where all right we can start to really push volume we can do all these other intensifiers we can do these other things to elicit the stimulus that we're wanting um but there is a point of diminishing returns like if we spend too much and It's kind of this paralysis by analysis, and you can't ever push volume. You can't ever push intensity. You can't ever push the envelope because you're so worried that you have the you're like ninety nine percent, or you're like ninety percent there, or ninety five percent there, instead of hundred percent there on that on that set. Um, and I think I see this all the time on social. Is like, yes, I'm heavy into execution. I've kind of established myself on social media as this guy, but it's like there's a point at which Okay, who came, like you're good at it? Sweet, like push, impress me by working now, not just look how good I'm doing this row. And it's like, sweet, bro, you're still small. Like, oh, <laughs> like just keep rowing and do it more intense, accumulate more volume. Now that you're good at it, that's great. And it's kind of like, again, it's that analogy of once you're up to a certain threshold of something and you have the skill, all right, push the envelope of that skill, and then keep adding to that skill and integrating that skill into other things to make you better at the sport itself. And so just because you can dribble doesn't mean you're good at basketball. Like you have to be able to get, to dribble, to pass, to shoot. Like you got to be good at multi, it's a multi dimensional sport. And so is training. You have to be good at execution. You have to be good at creating, eliciting a stimulus. And then you have to be able to mentally push yourself and actually dig deep and do something that, you know, I think Steve does really well. And less this kind of lets the world know that it's, It is, there is a mental aspect to this and like pushing and the consistency and all this stuff. And so it's this integrative game. Um, Yeah, that's the best way. I just wanted to kind of like, maybe put into a context where people can kind of understand like that I know I'm kind of established as this kind of execution guy. But if you train with me, if I'm doing like four or five sets, first couple as I'm like, act like kind of my acclimation sets. Yeah, I'm trying to like, I'm, my execution is like, if you saw it, to me, it's like, ah, that could improve, but I'm not worried about that. That's not going through my head. And if people train with me, they're so caught up in what their execution looks like, and then I'm judging them. And it's like, dude, if your execution was bad enough, I'd tell you, but like, it's good enough. Like, go, like, let's push, right? And like, there's a point at which you can worry too much about this one dimension. Again, like when it is a multi dimensional sport where you, there's so many factors that come into play to keep progressing. And, keep improving in your physique
0: uh, as a whole so i like that i think it's it's nice too because i didn't necessarily expect you guys to have opposite answers but i think this is cool because if you listen to and uh read or follow a lot of steve's content you will hear a lot of volume talk because it is very important um you'll still hear some technique stuff but that's not like your thing, um, Austin. On the the opposite, like like you said, you're known as the technique guy and like moving your body through proper functional movement patterns to elicit the biggest change and so on and so forth. So you, we were kind of expecting to hear opposite answers, and then you guys kind of met in that middle ground, which I think goes back to what this whole podcast has been about. And I really appreciate that, and and I love the idea of like. Lock down the fundamentals and then fucking push, like, let's go. And, and the way you articulate it, that then was perfect, man. So um, that's, that's going to wrap this up. I know we've been on here for quite a while, but man, I really enjoyed this. I think this is going to be a new norm for me is getting multiple coaches on and just going, having a conversation, man, like me and Austin were talking off air last time. It's like, I, I just love doing this shit and just talking to other coaches and just being able to communicate, man. It's such a cool thing. And it's so powerful for people like us to get on these platforms and share the message and share the information in the right way to people on a for a big audience. And I think we're all doing that very successfully. So um, kudos to you guys for being on the same mission as me. And uh, before we close out, just thank you guys for being here. Thank you for agreeing to the show. And if you guys can each uh, we'll start with Steve so we don't talk over each other. Um, Steve, if you (laughs) can just drop like your social media, your website, so people can follow you guys because you guys all both have a lot of great content
1: yeah i just want to say thank you very much for having me on um and it's been good to be able to chat with both of you good time to like for the first time really talking to austin and i thought you finished off kind of what i started there in terms of the end talking about once you've got a good enough technique like forward it on and that kind of finished off my analogy i was thinking well now you've learned to drive now you get really good at driving by actually driving like you don't really know how to drive once you've learned to drive you know well enough to just about attack the roads Anyway, um, so if you want to check out any of my stuff, um, revive stronger is basically my hand on everything. Um, Instagram is where we're biggest, the revive stronger podcast, which you referenced a few times. Um, I'm honored to interview some of the leading experts in kind of the physique realm, which is truly exciting. Uh, and then ReviveStronger.com is our website and you can access all of our articles and the, everything there, the podcast. So yeah, thank you very much again.
0: Yeah. I'll link everything in the show notes, Austin.
1: Yeah. I just want to say thank
2: you again. And Cody, uh, thank you for having this be a thing. Uh, And again, like formally, first, uh, kind of the first interactions outside of like DMing uh, Steve. This was really cool uh, because it's been kind of a long time coming, I think, uh, for the both of us in a way of kind of like, I think we agree on a lot, but there's like certain nuances and certain different like ways of putting things or thought processes that go behind it. But as a whole, like, I think it's super important that people see that they may see us talk about these nuances differently on social, but as a whole, like we're in agreement, like this is to progress and to keep educating uh, people. So I'm very grateful for the opportunity to be on here with both of you guys. Uh, And so to find me, uh, Austin current on, on Instagram, that's pretty much the best place to find me. Uh, people seem to pay attention there. And so that's where I put out content. Uh, so, in terms of instagram that's that's the best place to find me uh physiquedevelopment.com is our website for coaching and in terms of my podcast it's guys like you gave me the idea to do to do my thing and so i'm very grateful for that because as you can tell a lot of times i take things kind of off kind of off air of fitness and talk about something like i just go i go other places in my mind and so It's my podcast is almost that creative outlet for me because these guys, guys like Cody and Steve, do such a great job of talking X's and O's with like some of the leading experts in the world at at what we do that I didn't feel like I needed to add another one um, to basically just repeat what's already being so well said. Uh, So kudos to both of you. I have the utmost respect for the both of you. So um, my podcast is called Life Beyond Fitness. It actually launches here in about a week. Um, And I basically have. What I've done is I'm keeping it within fitness. And so I'll, I, I'm still interviewing kind of the same general people as these other guys are interviewing, but it's it's looking past the X's and O's and to look deeper among these individuals that are making an impact in our industry. And I mean, we more or less like talk about life, have different conversations, uh, things like what are you most excited for outside of fitness? Um, what things you're working on personally as an individual, just because I think these enigmas, um, like both of you guys, I think a lot of people that look up to you would like to know more about just like your life and like what you think is like a person, um, and what you get excited about. You know, like when you're walking down the street, like if you, are you into cars? Like, are you into shoes? Like, what are you into, man? Um, and kind of we just talk about that stuff and go deeper into that rabbit hole of like each door and apartment. It's like a new universe. Like, what do you think about that? Like, where's your mind go there? Uh, so that's basically the the podcast. So it's again, I just wanted to say that because you guys do such a great job um, at what you do. So thank you for, for myself and then just for the industry as a whole, like you guys are moving everything forward. So thank you very much. Um, But yeah, you guys gave me also gave me the kind of the go ahead that I needed to not come up with another podcast that was basically repeating what you guys are saying uh, and just go, go somewhere else with it and have, have have a little fun on my own (laughs) and talk, uh, talk just some nonsense really. But, that's me awesome.
0: thank you man uh i think i can speak for steve on this too like we appreciate it man that means a lot coming from you and um by the time this airs it will be out so i'm going to link your podcast in these uh in the show notes in the description as well as uh steve. guys i've done listeners thank you for being here um just like these guys i appreciate you spending the time with us and uh just as much as we take the time to learn this and teach it you're taking the time to learn it absorb it and use it in your life so kudos to you guys for doing that um thank you once again for being here and i will catch you next time I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next time.